I'd like to draw our attention to the screen uh, to a, a work of art by Sister Grace Remington. You can see that on the left-hand side of the screen. And then a, a reinterpretation or a, a, um, a cover, I don't know if that applies to music as well as art, uh, by the artist Scott Erickson, whose artwork appears in our lobby as well. I think this work of art offers not only a helpful theological framework to understand what's happening at Christmas, but I think it also uh, demonstrates how to read scripture well. So if we read the story of Christ's birth and don't hold in our minds the, the curse and the pain and the anguish from which the world is being rescued, we're perhaps missing something. There's a pastor in New York whose name is Bill Dandriano, and he offered some reflections. I don't think it was on this work of art, but it applies perfectly between the first Eve and the last Eve. So you can see, uh, perhaps put the pieces together, uh, Eve and Mary greeting one another. So, so from Bill Dandriano, the first Eve heard the sound of temptation and ate the forbidden fruit. The last Eve heard the sound of invitation and received the holy fruit that conquers the forbidden fruit. It's a series of statements that contrasts the, the first Eve and the last Eve. The first Eve offered forbidden fruit to her husband, and he became a sinner. The last Eve bore for her husband the holy fruit, and Joseph was forgiven. The first Eve ran away and hid behind trees from the presence of God. The last Eve stood before a tree, the cross, and remained with the presence of God himself. The first Eve was merely named the mother of all living. The last Eve truly became the mother of all living, bearing the one in whom all things hold together. The first Eve was kicked out of a garden banished from the tree of life. The last Eve carried in her arms the tree of life himself back into the garden. And this image also invites us to recall the serpent who tempts and deceives the first Eve, but not without reminding us of God's response in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when God addresses the serpent and says, I will make enemies of you and the woman, and of your offspring and her descendant, he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Of course, this interaction between Mary and Eve doesn't happen in Scripture, as it's depicted here. But there is an encounter between Mary and Elizabeth, which is the gospel text assigned for this week. So, if it's projected on the screen, I, I can read it from there. I don't have it in my notes, but it is important for what's to come, so I'll read it. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, 
When the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is, he, is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So, in what follows, we'll, we'll look at this passage of scripture as what Debbie Thomas has called the first Christian worship service in history. The first Christian worship service in history. Elizabeth coming, Mary coming to Elizabeth, Elizabeth opening the door, greeting Mary, and then this praise kind of issuing forth from Mary, which is the Magnificat that we read this morning for our scripture reading. So I'm also aware that I am breaking a streak that we had going of women who are up here speaking to us, uh, offering us words of life, and now you get me on the fourth Sunday of Advent. I apologize. Uh, Good news is we'll pick back up with um, women leading our uh, sermons the next two weeks, so this is just a blip on the radar screen. We'll be very forgettable. But at least we are talking about Mary and Elizabeth, uh, which is the text offered to us today. One more, I guess, word of preface. As we move into a discussion about the celebration of Mary's visit to Elizabeth, I don't want to uh, gloss over the pain that some may feel acutely during this time of year of, of infertility or of having lost a child. Uh, so of those paintings that we looked at just a moment ago, Mary and Eve, Scott Erickson said of that painting, the first thing I noticed about that painting, he said, what hit me the most was here are two moms that both lost their kids too early. So I think that's worth reflecting on as well here in the, the deep blue of the pre-dawn morning that is the fourth Sunday of Advent. So this worship service taking as our cue here what Debbie Thomas said of it, that it is the first Christian worship service, perhaps has implications for the way that we approach our worship. So I'm going to offer a few observations about this first Christian worship service that might be instructive for us on this final Sunday of Advent. And as we go, you'll see all of these points will be listed in the PowerPoint slides. I don't usually do that, but I think it would be helpful for us to consider them all and be able to, to kind of read them as, as we go. And I'll go quickly here because I know that we've got a lot to celebrate today. So first, this worship service, Mary's visit to Elizabeth, it is spirited, not superficial. So the text tells us directly that Elizabeth is full of the Holy Spirit when Mary visits her. Her son, John the Baptist, is dancing around in the womb. So this worship service is far from perfunctory. It's spirited, not superficial. And as we go through this morning, you might think both about uh, what our worship services maybe should look like. So this is as instructive but also as uh, a sense of gratitude, because I find, as we go through this list, perhaps you'll find the same, uh, that Solid Rock provides a lot of this. (laughs) Uh, So maybe you'll understand more as as we go. So I dream of of a church where worship is spirited, not superficial. Secondly, this worship service is born of necessity, not obligation. It's born of necessity, not obligation. So the fact that Mary rushes to Zechariah and Elizabeth communicates something. 
We can interpret Mary's haste as saying, if I don't gather with someone who knows me and who knows my circumstances and who cares for me, this burden might become too great for me. The worship service is born of necessity, not obligation. I dream of a church where worship is born of necessity and not merely obligation. Thirdly, the only ones in attendance at this worship service are vulnerable and humble. Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 and 2, God is speaking through Isaiah and saying, the heavens and the earth are mine. Who could possibly build me a house that is suitable for me? But God says through the prophet, I look to this one, at one who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. There is where God finds God's dwelling one who is humble and contrite in spirit. Certainly we see that in both Mary and Elizabeth at this first Christian worship service. Next, this worship service is a source of prophetic creativity. It's a source of prophetic creativity. So we have Mary uh, composing and performing a song right here at this first Christian worship service. She composes and performs it right then and there. This worship service is a source of prophetic creativity. I dream of a church where worship might be a source of prophetic creativity. And I hope you hear that two ways. I'm thankful for a church where the worship service is often a source of prophetic creativity. Kevin and Olivia, other uh, musicians who are here, thinking especially of you on this point. Next, I should have numbered these, but I guess bullet points will do. This worship service is steeped in scripture. So each year in reading the Magnificat, in preparation for Christmas, I'm struck by all the scripture that's packed into Mary's song. So if you were to, uh, if you were to hyperlink this text with all of the scriptures that it alludes to and that are referenced, this passage that is Mary's song, would would light up like a Christmas tree. I mean, there is so much packed in here. So much scripture is glossed in her song. Genesis 17, Exodus 15, 1 Samuel 2, Hannah's song. Psalm 31, Psalm 85, 103, 107, 145, 146, Amos 9, just to name a few. I'd encourage you, if you're interested, to go back through and look at the song and draw some of those parallels that you see from the Hebrew scriptures. So looking at these last two points kind of together, the song of praise is certainly impromptu, and it is creatively inspired, but it draws from the well of scripture. It summarizes the themes of the whole Old Testament. Mary has received a message from the angel that all things are about to change and be made new, and her song goes right back to tradition. It's creative, but it is packed, shot through with scriptural tradition. There's a quote from theologian Thomas Dehaney Bernard on Mary's song. He says, the words, as well as the thoughts present in the Magnificat, are those of a high-souled Hebrew maiden of devout and meditative habit, whose mind has taken the tone of the scriptures in which she has been nurtured, We feel the breath of the prophets, 
We catch the echoes of the Psalms. We recognize most distinctly the vivid reminiscences of the Song of Hannah. I dream of a church where the worship service is steeped in Scripture. I've even seen evidence of it this morning and heard evidence of it this morning. I'm thankful for a church where the worship service is steeped in Scripture, draws from that well. This first worship service between Mary and Elizabeth brings together those experiencing pain and joy. It's worth noting that the worship we see on Elizabeth's doorstep doesn't take place at some sanitized remove from fear, from pain, and from loss. This is again from Debbie Thomas. She says, this is worship in the crucible of uncertainty and hardship. Think about Mary's situation. This is worship as haven, worship as healing. It is an exchange of need and a blessing, a celebration of God's work and another's life. I dream of a church where worship brings together those experiencing both pain and joy. I'm grateful to be a part of a church that does welcome those experiencing both pain and joy. This worship service contains both good news and bad news. The good news perhaps is more obvious at first glance. It's good news for the poor, for the suffering, for the downtrodden, but it's also bad news. It's bad news for the rich and mighty. It's also bad news I would submit to us this morning for our false selves the personas we adopt that really aren't true to what God has created us to be. It's also bad news for those who are obsessed with climbing the ladder of success. Author and theologian Chris Green says that this song means, quote, we have to attend to those from whom we stand to gain nothing. This worship offers both good and bad news. I dream of a church where a worship service offers both good and bad news together. And I'm grateful to be a part of a church that offers both of those things. Next, this worship service is intergenerational. So consider who's present here at this first Christian worship service. Mary, who is too young to have a child, visits Elizabeth, who is past childbearing age. And the first thing Mary does is go to Elizabeth. She has received this word that is worthy of celebration and her instinct is to rush toward wiser, older people. This worship service is intergenerational. I dream of being a part of a church with an intergenerational worship service. I'm grateful to be a part of a church with an intergenerational worship service. Am I laying this on too thick? <laughs> Maybe so. Next, and this is perhaps the greatest miracle of the entire story, <laughs> this worship service occurs in the presence of family. It's easy to overlook what is maybe, maybe truly the greatest miracle of this account. Maybe that's a bit anachronistic, but Mary seeks out her extended family as a source of comfort. For many of us, the house of a relative is perhaps literally the last place we'd think to go for, for comfort, for encouragement. And I want to be careful here because, of course, there are all manner of precarious family situations and relational dynamics that many of us will face even this week. But I wonder if this narrative might help us maybe reimagine what's possible for our own families when Jesus is present. So many families have been uh, encumbered 
by the divisions that culture has kind of thrust upon us. And if they're communicating at all, they're maybe struggling to find uh, life-giving words or a way forward. Perhaps your family story this morning is defined by those who uh, are invited but don't come. <laughs> Perhaps you're waiting for somebody who uh, may not show their face. Someone maybe who is deeply in need of love. And in this worship service, Mary and Elizabeth, the space held between the two and their unborn sons, we find evidence that healthy, loving family relationships are possible. And they're possible precisely because God is present through his spirit and the Savior whose coming we await. This worship service looks backward and forward. So we said just a moment ago that this worship service is intergenerational, but it's, it's even more expansively intergenerational than just having old and young together. It's more than simply a meeting between old and young. It also includes those yet to be born and those no longer living. Just look again at Luke chapter 1. All these references to all generations will call me blessed. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He spoke these things to Abraham and to his offspring forever. So the song that Mary sings stretches from Abraham to forever. It expresses God's work already accomplished and yet to be accomplished. This is indeed a, a prophetic song. I like the way that Barbara Brown Taylor puts it. She says, prophets almost never get their verb tenses straight because part of their gift is being able to see the world as God sees it, not divided into things that are already over and things that haven't happened yet, but as an eternally unfolding mystery. And finally, this worship service provides a melody for the word. This worship service provides a melody for the word. You know, mu music can have a powerful effect on our thoughts, on our emotions, on our interior worlds. I heard one pastor say recently, <laughs> I resent this, but people don't sing the sermon in the shower. People don't sing the sermon, in the, which I guess is true, right? Uh, if you find yourself singing the sermon in the shower, that's a little weird. Probably singing Christmas carols in the shower, right? Or some of the songs that we sing here on Sunday morning, which is why I'm especially grateful, again, that our services are steeped in Scripture and our song selections are steeped in Scripture. But I want us to imagine for, for just a moment... Mary's song becoming a melody for the word. And I mean something really specific here, so I'm going to do my best to unpack it quickly. When Mary sings, she's not just uttering a, a general truth about God's ongoing work. Mary is foreshadowing in song what Jesus will enact in his earthly ministry. So, for example, recall Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the, and the tax collector. So I'm going to read this parable briefly here as we head toward a close. And as we read this, I invite you to imagine the tune of Mary's song alongside this parable. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, 
God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So this is just one example of maybe many that we could point to. But imagine Mary's song of praise becoming maybe even like Jesus' earworm, something that is stuck in his head and helps to define his ministry. So to extend this metaphor, how might our worship provide a melody fitting for the word? And have we internalized this melody of Mary's song? Finally, and this really is the last point, I'll I'll wrap up. This worship service occurs because a door is opened. It occurs because a door is opened. So for Mary, this visiting of Elizabeth's house means at least some risk. It holds the promise of safety and comfort, but it only becomes a place of safety and comfort as Elizabeth yields to the Spirit's work and invites Mary in. And in a way, we live out our life with Christ just this place, where Mary, in the home of Elizabeth, bearing good news but risking vulnerability. We're also called to be Elizabeth in places that are maybe homey and familiar to us, providing welcome and hospitality for those at risk who have nothing to offer us. I want to conclude with an image one final image, uh, a brief snippet of a poem and an invitation to the table. Uh, You'll see up on the screen uh, another work of art, this time by Chris Green. It's called The Holy Family. And this simple illustration, which is almost kind of like a, uh, could be done with like a single brush stroke, depicts Joseph and Mary. They're connected by a line. They're silhouettes forming what appears to be a doorway. And in the center of that doorway is Mary's pregnant belly, illuminated. And although Green's intention is to show Mary and Joseph, we could say, because the the title of this piece is The Holy Family, we could perhaps posit that these figures might also represent Mary and Elizabeth. They're family, after all. So in a reflection on this text, not specifically referring to this piece of art that he made, Chris Green refers to Mary and Elizabeth as the hinges of the door that God is opening. Mary and Elizabeth are the hinges of the door that God is opening. By their worship, they are opening this door. And the question is, I think for us this morning, are our doors open? Are we practicing the kind of worship that opens doors? And then also to whom Are these doors open? Are they open to those who, from whom we stand to benefit nothing? Kenneth Stephen, in a poem, musicians, if you'd come, I I need to conclude here. In a poem entitled Nativity, it says, There was no sign the world had changed forever or that God had taken place. Just a a child crying softly in a corner and the door open for those who came to find.
Would you stand as we prepare to approach the table? God, we are especially thankful this morning for Solid Rock and for the leaders that you have placed over us to walk this journey alongside us. We pray, Lord, that our, mercy, our, our worship might be pleasing to you. Along with the psalmist, we pray, let the words of our mouths and the meditation of our heart be pleasing to you, Lord. And as we await your coming, we pray that we would worship faithfully, that we would wait faithfully, that we would be prepared, Lord, prepare our hearts to, to weep with those who weep, to mourn with those who mourn, but also to rejoice with those who are rejoicing. We think specifically this morning of Allie Van Note and her family. We rejoice with them. And for those who are weeping, Lord, we are a part of a body who every time we come together experience both pain and joy and are invited to live in that tension. Equip us for that work. Again, that our worship might be pleasing to you. We pray these things in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs>